Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Now take a deep breath. Long exhale. And let your eyes open softly. If you feel like you need to stretch your arms or legs, that's perfectly fine. Good evening. It's nice to be here. How many times? I think four. Four times here in Port Moody, which is lovely. Um, I can't remember what we did last time, but it will be good this time also. <laughs> Thank you to Karen for having me here. So, uh, the title of the evening, what's the title of the evening? <laughs> That's what I thought. Emptiness and love. And uh, the way we're going to enter it is by talking in very simple but precise ways about how meditative practice works. Um, in, in August, I was in Sweden and I was teaching a text called the Anapanasati Sutta. And after that I was in Denmark and I continued teaching the Anapanasati Sutta, but I never finished it. So I uh, haven't taught since then, so I thought that this weekend we would uh, keep studying that text. It's very, very simple, but you can work on a line for a month, as you'll start to see. And so I thought tonight we could just jump into it and uh, study it together as a way of understanding both emptiness and love and seeing what on earth this has to do with our life. Does this sound like a reasonable thing to do together tonight? Yeah. So I'll talk for less than an hour and then we'll have a break and then we can have questions and answers and debate or whatever you want to, whatever you want to do. So as many of you know, uh, mindfulness is the coolest thing on earth and can only do good. It will relieve your stress and transform your life. And this is all a great thing. The problem is, is so many people uh, interested in mindfulness uh, never get a chance to read the primary source material that this uh, trend uh, comes out of. 
And so uh, tonight I thought I would uh, go through with you the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness of breathing, which uh, how many of you have heard of the term mindfulness? Yeah, okay. So uh, here we are in India. It's around 400 BC. The Buddha is probably in his 50s or 60s. He's been teaching since he was 30. He passes away when he's 80. And uh, it's the rains retreat. So it's a little bit like the weather. Uh, there was a time where for three months, the community would come together, the monks and the nuns, and practice during the rainy season. And towards the end of the retreat, they had a very beautiful ritual where they would sit around in a circle. And so you can imagine you've been very quiet in silence for a couple of months. And then you do this ritual where everybody comes together in a circle in the evening, just like this. We should have done this together. And you say out loud something that uh, you've done that breaks the precepts something unethical or unskillful you've done that you want to get off your chest. It's like a social confession. Um, but you don't get punished, you don't get in trouble, and you just get to air out uh, something that's been um, heavy for you or something you've done that's been uh, inappropriate. I don't know about you, I have to do this every day, I feel like. <laughs> just like one bad email, you know, and I feel so badly. This is a good hygiene practice, you know, is to say out loud something that's uh, heavy in our hearts. Maybe if we did this every day, there would be a little less resentment, a uh, little less anger and uh, unspoken energy in our uh, bodies and relationships, I think. Uh, years ago, there was an amazing revolution, as many of you know, in Burma. And after that revolution, uh, two years after that revolution, I invited the, the three monks who helped start that revolution, uh, who had been uh, sponsored to come to New York, I invited them to Toronto uh, to come give a lecture. And uh, I was out with them during the day, and I said to them, um, how have you guys dealt with all the trauma from, uh, you know, the imprisonment and so on. They, you could see a lot of PTSD in them. And uh, they described doing this practice where once a week they sat around and um, they just confessed, basically. I know confession has like kind of a heavy, heavy baggage to it, but, but it is kind of an amazing practice, actually. So uh, anyways, so this happened. Um, and then the Buddha says to the community, <clears throat> uh, this community is really peaceful. Everybody is very quiet. So I've decided to stay here for the last month of the rains retreat. And then he says he's going to uh, teach the practice of mindfulness of breathing. And word spreads. Word spreads that this is going on in this grove outside of a city, Savati. And so all kinds of people come. 
not nuns and monks, but all kinds of lay people come like you. And they come to the elder teachers and they set up under trees in the groves and the Buddha starts giving these instructions. Probably every sentence here is like one day. Every day he gives an instruction. And then the elders go to the, the people who are flocking to this forest. Uh, and um, sorry, the new people come to these elders and they get taught meditation. And the community grows and grows and grows. Could you picture this? Can you picture this at all? So, so the elder monks, they're all very, very settled in their practice. They've just done this very deep confession. Everybody's feeling really good. And word gets out that the Buddha is going to start teaching how to meditate. It's like the how-to course. It's like Anthony Robbins shows up and is going to... Is he still cool? I don't know. Is he still around? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so... Um, the title is uh, Anapanasati Sutta. So Sutta is the Pali word for the Sanskrit word Sutra, which is a, a, a weaving together of teachings. Um, it's where you get the English word Sutra uh, to tie together. Uh, Ana is this Pali word for the Sanskrit word Prana. Uh, apana is describing the exhale, the energy of exhaling. And sati is mindfulness. And sati is a verb, which means to remember. To remember. To remember. So when we say mindfulness, it's a translation of the word sati, which in, tech, sort of in technical meditative jargon means to remember what's happening in the present moment, to remember what's happening. Most of us, we get the instruction, notice your breathing, and you're like, okay, great. So you notice, and before you get to the top of your inhale, you're off somewhere. And it's interesting with breathing because your breath is an interesting anchor because it's embodied and it's always present. So your breath is a great object of meditation. It's always changing, it's always present, and it brings you into your body. And the other thing about meditative practice on the breath is that when you're meditating on the breath, when you're feeling your breath, I saw your password. <laughs> when you're meditating on your breath, you intuit other people's passwords. This, really, this is a true thing. Yeah. And then you can join anonymous. Shut down whatever you want. <clears throat> Where was I? Okay. So the Buddha says, how is mindfulness of breathing in and out of great fruit and great benefit when cultivated and made much of. Having gone to the wilderness, the foot of a tree, or an empty building, one sits down with legs crossed and the body erect. Establishing mindfulness to the forefront, always attentive she breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. So, you sit down somewhere quiet, 
you cross your legs. If you need to sit in a chair, perfectly fine. If you're in a hospital bed, it's perfectly fine. If you're pregnant and you have to lie down on your left side, it's perfectly fine. You don't have to have your legs crossed. Breathing in long, she knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing in short, she knows I'm breathing in short. Breathing out long, she knows I'm breathing out long. Breathing out short, she knows I'm breathing... Oh, that should say out. Sorry about that. I've been tra uh, this is my own translation here. So, it's in process. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the way that I would say this very simply is, when you come in contact with the body, feel the breathing, and if the breath is deep, then just notice that it's deep. And if your breath is shallow, notice that it's shallow, but don't mess with it. So if your breath is shallow, don't try and make it deep. And if your breath is deep, don't try and make it shallow. And if you wanted to get even simpler, we would say, don't manipulate your breathing. But this is very hard, because most of us, we're so unconscious about our breathing like if I ask you right now if you're breathing softly through your nose or not, you might not know. <laughs> right? Most of us are very unconscious of our breathing. And our breathing actually holds in it a lot of our memory. Because you can't talk about breathing without talking about patterns in the body. You know that you have a body because you're breathing. And you know that you're breathing because you have a body. Right? The first way into the body is to feel that one's breathing. Everything else is just visual images. So we sense that the body is breathing. But a lot of us subtly manipulate our breathing because we have old emotions or old grief or old trauma that we haven't been able to make contact with. And when you have old trauma that you haven't been able to make contact with, there's some dissociation. We've dissociated from our physicality in order to be safe. This is a very good biological mechanism. And something about trauma I think we're all learning is that it's much, much more pervasive in the culture than uh, I think has ever been uh, acknowledged and appreciated and worked with uh, consciously. But even if there are not these kind of capsules of trauma in your own body, there's still all kinds of holding, like we have breakups or we have issues from our childhood or all kinds of things that arise in our experience over the years that we haven't fully metabolized. And over time, uh, there can be some distrust of the body. You may be very physical, you may be a rock climber, a dancer, a yoga teacher, but still, there can still be some dissociation from the body. So when you notice mindfulness of breathing, the first thing we're doing is feeling our breath without changing it. It's very profound, actually. 
See if you can do it right now. See? As soon as I said notice your breath, what'd you do? You changed it. Now one of the reasons, and this is my own kind of commentary on this section, is one of the reasons why I think it's important to be able to do this at the level of breathing is that later on when we want to be mindful of more turbulent emotional states or mental states, which is what we're going to talk about a lot tomorrow afternoon, it's hard to be present with more difficult mind states or emotional states without manipulating them if we can't do it at the level of breathing. Right? So, so we're training at the level of breathing to just let the breath be. Just let the breath be. And let it change. And let it be natural. Let it be really natural. Uh, so a lot of people, when they start doing this practice, is when they sit down, which you're going to start doing every day after tonight, they do a little ritual, like... For example, I like to lean side to side, so my sits bones are grounded. And then maybe they take some long breaths to just feel the breath as spacious. Or maybe they want to feel the breath as three-dimensional, uh, just to get a sense of the breath. And maybe there's um, three or four minutes of this ritual, counting the breath. Sometimes when I work with people who have some anxiety, uh, the practice I give them is for the first five minutes, when you inhale, say to yourself, peace in. Like, not out loud. So as you're inhaling, you say peace in, and you exhale, say peace out. Peace in, and peace out. Just like that. Peace in, Peace out. Just to get a sense, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And even if everything's not okay, you can always feel a place in the current of your breathing where everything's okay. It's possible. It's kind of like, you know when Apple computers go to sleep and they have that light that glows? Apparently the new ones don't have that. Does anyone remember in the olden days when your apple glowed? Yeah? Was there a name for that? Sleep mode? That's it? Someone should come up with a name. So, so I like to think that that is the, the same part of my breathing. So if I have a lot of anxiety, I'll go to the breath, and I'll find the same part of my breathing, the part of my breath where there's some calmness that's glowing. And the longer you keep focused on that, the more it grows until you can feel a more alive breath. So, can we, can we keep going? Do you, do you want to ask questions, or do you want me to keep going, and then we'll have time for questions? Is there anything burning that somebody needs to? Okay. Um, yeah, we're only going to look at that. Okay. 
Then one train, you can actually go down. To, I don't want to give it all away. Uh, keep, yeah, right there. Okay. Then one trains oneself. Breathing in, I can feel the whole body breathing. Breathing out, I can feel the whole body breathing. Okay. So what's going to happen is, you're feeling that the body is breathing. And then, the attention, which is called chitta. Let's say that. Chitta. Chitta. That's your attention span. The chitta is going to wander off from the breathing and stick to whatever it can stick to. Anything. It'll take anything. Good fantasy, bad fantasy, past, future, whatever. Have you noticed this? Uh, yeah, okay. So, the attention gets on the train of thinking and it goes off. Sometimes it doesn't even know it's gotten on the train. And it goes off and, is, and when you notice that, a network in the brain lights up called the salience network. It lights up, which is like a flag that goes up saying, oh, gone. <laughs> okay? And then you can come back again to your breathing. And that's what mindfulness is. So mindfulness is the ability to de-center from what the attention's been caught in and come back to the breath. So I've spent a lot of time tonight so far talking about your breathing. Let's talk about the entanglement. Okay? Because what tends to happen is this. The attention goes off, goes into a thought, and then it makes a circle. It turns around on itself, if you will. And this is called vritti. So let's say that. Vritti. And vritti means a revolution. Okay? So what happens is, is your thoughts go off your attention stuck in and it starts turning. And we would call this, in modern psychology, rumination. Right? The ruminative tendency. Um, in Pali, it's called papancha. Let's say that. Papancha. I love that word. Papancha. Which means conceptual proliferation. And what it is, it's when a concept has proliferated another concept. Kind of amazing that people sat there and mapped this out a couple thousand years ago. Okay, so the attention starts moving around in, in, in circles. The problem with this is that when your attention is turning in circles, while it's doing that, it's turning on a center in the brain that builds a narrative of me in the past or in the future. So while you're off daydreaming, while you're off telling stories, you're actually creating a sense of yourself that's a theoretical self. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a narration of oneself in the past or in the future. And you're reinforcing those stories the longer your attention is stuck in them. 
The problem with this is most of the stories we daydream during the day are so outdated. And if you're a creative person, it's hard to have space for uh, creative ideas or explorations or a new vocabulary because when you're off in these loops, it's the opposite of creativity. It's the old stories turning around, which then create anxiety. And the reason why it creates anxiety is because the self that's created in those loops has no ground. It's just language, you see? So that self doesn't actually exist and then becomes anxious because it has no ontological base. <laughs> that self can't be grounded because it's a, it's a series of stories glued together with craving. Okay. Okay, so in yoga and Buddhist philosophy, they use the term uh, shunya to talk about this self. So are you following so far? Yeah. Which is that the self, so that's the, the like self we're dreaming all the time, is not only haunted by this existential anxiety, but it's actually at its core empty of any inherent substantiality. It, 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 there's no core at the core of that self. So it's not just that an emotion has no core. It's not just that a thought has no core, right? We, we know this, a thought arises, we watch it change, and then what was that? It was air, basically. But when we're, our attention's glued to it, it seems so real. But it actually doesn't have a core. It doesn't have an, an, an essence. And this is how we use the term empty, which is the most misunderstood term Dharma practice. So empty is not a thing. Empty is a, a lens you use to look at experience to see that it's empty of an inherent thingness. In other words, you don't exist in the way you think you exist. Or you could say you only exist in the way you think you exist. More on this another time. In other words, from moment to moment to moment to moment, we're actually constructing our sense of self through the use of how we're paying attention. And when we're not paying attention, we're constructing old virtual versions of ourselves. 
And sometimes we think we're thinking about other people. Like, for example, sometimes we're telling a story to ourselves about someone else. But that story we're telling ourselves about another person is really actually just to reify our own sense of ourselves. And because human beings are meaning-making, this storytelling is never going to stop. It's <laughs> never going to stop. And there's nothing wrong with that unless you don't see it. And I remember uh, early on, when, in, in, when I was 20 actually, on a meditation retreat, being the first time that I really saw my thoughts. <laughs> Sitting still and really just seeing the ticker tape of thinking and realizing all of the thoughts are about me. All of my thoughts that I think are all somehow doing something for me. <laughs> Creating a me. It's a powerful thing to see. The body is a storyless landscape. And so we want to spend time breathing in the body because it gives us a break from the storyteller. And one of the interesting things about trauma research, because I was talking about trauma a little earlier, <clears throat> is um, how trauma cannot be healed cognitively. You can't heal trauma just by talking about it. And even though cognitive behavioral therapy is the coolest thing ever, supposedly. Um, it's not the modality that's healing trauma. And even though long-term talk therapy, which I happen to be a big fan of and support, is also not so good at working with trauma. Because trauma is a physical experience that's happened to us that we haven't processed yet. An event has happened that hasn't been metabolized. So imagine, an event has occurred, but it hasn't been turned into an experience yet. So it's looking, it, it, it's an event is trying to, is looking for a way to turn itself into experience. So we have to somehow use the breath to go into the body in order to heal at an emotional level. And the same is true for things that are not traumatic. It's like when people have a breakup. I always say to them, you have no idea what happened. Because you know when people have a breakup, they'll like explain everything about how the break, you know, what happened and why people split up. You actually don't know completely. You don't know completely. But there's some deep grief and healing that has to happen in the body because when you break up with someone, let's say you left somebody because the relationship was terrible and you walked out one day. I'm free now. 
Well, really? What about all the loving feelings you had? Can you feel those also? <laughs> no way. They're an asshole. <laughs> so unless we can see the emptiness of what's arising as not actually being who we are and what things really are, it's hard to be loving because we're so convinced of our certainty of ourselves. We're in the way. We're in the way of love. So sometimes I read the Buddha's teaching here on mindfulness of breathing as a love letter, saying, uh, this is how to be loving to your own self and to others. This is how you make friends with your mind. So we come back to our body, we come back to breathing, and healing happens, for real. But then you start to see that the momentum of the citta vrittis are so powerful that it's really hard to come back to your breathing. Really hard to come back to your breathing. So you train yourself to come back again and again and again and again. And to get deeper into meditation on the breath, you have to get more and more relaxed. Really relaxed. So relaxed. So it's really important that we have a practice that wakes up the physicality of our bodies, and we also have a practice that completely relaxes our bodies, so that when we sit to meditate, we know how to do both at the same time. How to have a practice that's alert and a body that's like a mountain so that we can feel our breathing and begin to, to work with and transform and befriend whatever is moving through us. Whatever is moving through us. Some of you might know the Christian theologian Thomas Merton, who uh, in the last half of his life became uh, quite close with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and uh, meditated and was very interested in Buddhist practice. And uh, in his journals, which I spent uh, many years reading, when he describes meditation, he says, I don't know what it is, but something moves me until I'm reduced to tears. Isn't that beautiful? It's like letting yourself be a block of ice and melt. 
So the thing about sitting is that if you decide uh, to sit <clears throat> for 10 minutes every day, you pick a place, maybe the foot of a tree, or an empty hut, or an empty condo. And uh, you sit down, and you find a place where you can feel your breathing. Maybe your nostrils, or maybe it's your belly. And you feel your breathing. And if you need to do the ritual first, you do the ritual. Do you remember the ritual? Peace in, peace out is a good one. So for the first few minutes, peace in, peace out. Feel one spot in your body where you're breathing. Then let go of that one area and just feel the whole body breathing. It doesn't mean big breathing, remember. It's just feel how your body is breathing. The way I usually articulate this with students is trust that your body knows how to breathe. Trust that your body knows how to breathe. And feel the body breathing. And don't meditate. In other words, you don't need to feel any special way. Just feel what's happening. And then after 10 minutes, um, especially if you have the Michael Stone meditation app, <laughs> the timer will go off, and then um, you're good to go. So all of us have mental states and emotions and physical states that we have a challenging time with during the day and especially in relationship and especially at work. Everybody. And so one of the ways that we do social action in our life is we take care of our minds. No new political system, no new party leader, no new grassroots organization is going to be able to help you work with your mind. You have to work with your mind. So we sit every day for 10 minutes. And when you sit, you feel your breathing. And every mental state that can arise will flow through that 10 minutes. And over the years, you'll start to learn how to feel those different experiences in the body. And then you'll notice reactivity arising. I want to get up. Why am I doing this? I'm so bored. I could be doing something to lose weight, like whatever your thing is. You notice all those thoughts, and you stay with your breathing and stay with the experience, and notice how those thoughts change. Which we're, Tomorrow we're going to talk about working with thinking. That's what we're doing in the afternoon. And that is a really valuable practice for yourself and for all sentient beings for all sentient beings. 
because you are cultivating a non-reactive mind. You're cultivating a mind that's not only non-reactive, but really knows what the experience of non-reactivity is. Most of us, we really know reactivity. But we don't actually let the experience of non-reactivity, the experience of peace, imprint itself in our hearts, in memory. The experience of peace moves through so quickly that it doesn't end up as structure in our minds and hearts. And you know, in this model, your mind, manas, is uh, right here in your body, right here. In ancient India, uh, they didn't know your brain was in, your, in here, actually. The mind and heart were one thing, here. So when we say mind, it's here, actually, when we say mindfulness. It's here in the center of the chest. Yeah. Your skull was considered to be a bone that was filled with marrow. So when you blew your nose, that was like the marrow. You were literally blowing your brains out when you blew your nose. Our thoughts are really like dreams, aren't they? Like mirages, images, changing all the time. And we don't really notice our thoughts. We just are them. We're identified with them. And so it's so important to get a little space in there and to be able to notice thinking and then notice the subjective experience of noticing. Because in a way, what we're cultivating in meditative practice is not an interest in noticing what we're noticing, but an interest in the experience of the noticing. The experience of being aware. You see, the experience of being aware. Like right now. The light in here, the temperature, sounds, just this, exactly how this is. And then we can see how we, ha we have this attitude, you know. I like this. I don't like this. Or we lean into it. Or we're like, it's not, I kind of need more. It's got to be more than just this. 
And then we realize we're completely missing our lives. My body can't be this. My life can't be this. Do we do this so subtle sometimes? So when you're working with what's showing up in your awareness, one of the most important things to watch when you start coming back to your breathing, you really want to check your attitude. So for example, if pain is there, you come back to your breath, pain's there, notice your attitude. Are you trying to get out of it? Are you trying to escape? Just notice what's coming up. And then notice your attitude. And then, when the attitude has some balance in it, the attention's balanced, then you can also see that whatever's arising um, is empty. It's real, it exists, but it doesn't have a solid core that we give to it, that we impute. So for example, when a strong emotion comes up like jealousy, we really think, oh, that's real, I'm jealous. And we want to be so consumed with our jealousy. I'm actually not even sure if jealousy is really an emotion. I think jealousy is more like acting out an emotion. It's usually fear is the emotion. Let's take jealousy out of the emotional category, can we? Can we just decide that? Is there like a committee you talk to? What's that? It's not a primary emotion. So, <clears throat> when you're in jealousy, the jealousy seems so real. And if you don't have a practice, where you have something to come back to that's not the chitavritti of jealousy, then you're just identified with the jealousy. You see? Or, if you have a practice of being able to come back again, you go, oh, the jealousy. <laughs> and it's still there. You still feel jealous, but you come back to your breath, and the jealousy is there, there's jealousy there, but you're not investing in the jealousy. It's still there. You still feel jealous. Come back to the rest. And then the jealousy kind of undoes itself and changes into something else. Because it's empty of an inherent thingness. It has no self, jealousy. What a relief. The jealousy. The jealousy liberates itself. We say, oh, you've got to let go of it. You don't have to let go of anything, actually. Because you couldn't hold on to the thing anyways. 
You just come back to your breathing and it lets go of itself. It lets go of itself. And this is how meditative practice works. A lot of us, we know so much about psychology. We know so much about dynamics and relationships. But we don't know how to work with our own minds. Or we do to a certain extent. Uh, new meditators, their tendency is to have what I call sledgehammer mind, which is you come back to your breath, and then you see thoughts, and, and, and you're just thinking a lot, and you get frustrated, and then you pull out the sledgehammer, you're like, I'm bad. I'm bad at this. And that doesn't work. And more experienced meditators, they have what I call checklist mind, which is, they just like check off, oh, breathing, yep. Uh, being able to let go, yep. And, and that's it. And there's like, they just hit a plateau and they can't go any deeper. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's nobody here, but it happens. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything is interdependent. Everything. So, when, when your digestive system is operating out of balance, when you have too many emails, when you're not sleeping well, uh, when you're not getting outside and getting enough sunlight, and when your genetics, when your biology is affecting your mind, all of that, oh, and other people, all, I don't have enough hands for all the conditions, all of that creates the conditions for jealousy, creates the conditions for anger, creates the conditions for psychosis creates the conditions for depression, you see? So all of these multiple factors come to play. Depression arises, which is 90% of depression is rumination, right? And, but, but there is no core to any of these mental states. They're all conditioned phenomena, you see? They're empty. They're real, but nobody's actually an angry person. There, a certain number of conditions have to be present, and you have anger, or you have psychosis. Nobody's in psychosis all the time. Nobody's jealous all the time. You might think, oh yeah, actually I know somebody. <laughs> You see, even pain, pain arises in conditions, and if the conditions change, the pain changes. And so the, the eye of the Dharma is to start to look at life in this way, to see everything that's happening, including 
our own experience as conditioned phenomena. Conditions change, experience changes. Not just it's impermanent, not just that it's changing, but that its conditions have come together. Conditions have come together. When I was a kid, my favorite place was synagogue. I grew up Jewish. Favorite place was synagogue. And um, um, uh, I used to like not going to the kids' area, but I would go where the really old men went, where they prayed. And um, when they all got together and chanted uh, in the morning, when they prayed, when they sung together, it was so beautiful. Um, And I remember, uh, after a while, getting to know who was there. Because uh, if there was a certain group there, the chanting was amazing. And if there was another group there, it was so terrible. And I remember thinking, like, I remember thinking about that a lot as a kid. Oh, certain things come together, it's great. Other things come together, it's not so great. So I, anyways, when I talk about it, I still think of these old men chanting. It's very beautiful. In Judaism, um, they're, uh, this is a tangent. They're not so big on uh, belief systems. Like, like being Jewish is not so much about believing something. Uh, it's about a practice. It's, it's the, one of the things about Judaism I always, even though I left it when I was young, but it's one of the things I always appreciated about the kind of Judaism I was exposed to. Like lots of cultural practice, but not a lot about like what you're supposed to believe. They're not so big in heaven and hell, and um, it's kind of beautiful. Anyways, I'm saying all this because I think the same is true with the Dharma practice that we're studying together. Um, We can start to see that having a spiritual life is completely about your perception and your conduct. It's all about your perception and your conduct. That's what having a spiritual life is about. Having beautiful conduct. And you can enter practices that wake you up both to the quality of your perception and also to ways of living that are meaningful and completely sidestep having to commit to any belief system. And that's the beautiful thing about meditative practice and what we're going to study this weekend is you don't have to like adopt a new story about everything. In fact, if you do, it's really going to get in the way. But we all need practices and techniques to wake up. Dreaming, wake up. Dreaming again, wake up. That's it, that's our practice. And then the more you do it, the more you start to see the violence in being asleep. The violence in not looking clearly. The harm in not listening. 
harm in not communicating. The harm in not being able to work with those old habits that are still trying to work themselves out in your body. You know the ones I'm talking about. The cravings you don't know how to sit with. The aversions you can't tolerate. Some sensations in your body that are unbearable. How do we start to uh, make friends with these uh, in a way that's not cognitive? So that's my question that I'll leave you. It's my question too. It's all of, we all have this question. So thank you for listening. And this seems like a good time to have a break.